welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today, we're lucky enough to have Warren Hearns join us. He's another longtime Atlanta resident whose background is both impressive and broad. After graduating from West Point, he fulfilled his military obligation to the Army and then went back to school to get both a master's and a PhD from Georgia Tech. He began his career with Lucent Technologies back when they were still a very large player and then moved on to UPS, where he spent many years with various areas of optimization and predictive modeling. Following a brief stint at the Home Depot, he landed at Cardlytics in 2011, where he slowly rose to the Senior Vice President of Analytics and Data Science. Given that analytics is at the heart of the Cardlytics business model, the efforts of Warren and his team played a big role in helping guide them to their uh, initial public offering several years ago. I think you're going to learn a lot from Warren today, and with that, let's welcome Warren to the show. Welcome to the show, Warren. Hey, thanks for asking me. It's, it's fun to be here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I'd already mentioned, uh, you're a, a longtime analytics person, but you actually came up through more of the operations research and optimization angle, which isn't uncommon, but also isn't the, the, the most common uh, angle to get in. So kind of how did you move from that world into some of the more traditional analytics and data science over the years? Sure. Um, well, I've always been interested on interested and focused on um, on using math to solve solve problems and and operations research. Uh, a lot like AI and machine learning today is uh, is a collection of mathematical tools applied to to uh, problems of interest. And in operations research, you know, we formulate the problem, we we look at the system, we make a model, we come up with some alternatives, and we evaluate. And it, it covers a lot of areas such as mathematical programming, probability statistics, logistic regression, you know, game theory, forecasting. And so I've always been really interested in using math to make better decisions. And, um, and my background originally was in the military. And so the military really did a lot of operations research all the way from World War II up through uh, when I was at West Point and, and continuing today. So that's that is my background. I've always been interested in that. And, and I know that, that, you know, the, the saying is all models are bad. Some models are useful. Um, what really got me into the data science area is the idea that specifically for my area of research is that possibly we could use mathematical algorithms such as dynamic programming and, and fuzzy sets and things like that to come up with a way to solve something, even when you didn't have a model, it's model free, uh, model free learning. And so that's how I got into it. Uh, it was more of just a joy of seeing the computer learn something and uh, either have a model or make a model better or possibly do it without the model itself. Yeah, you know, you mentioned something uh, that's uncommon, which is you graduated from uh, West Point. And obviously at West Point, they, in addition to the academic rigor, they focus on physical fitness, leadership, et cetera. So what do you think uh, you learned at West Point that you were able to bring into your, your more standard business career over the years? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, physical fitness was not my, was not my strength coming out of high school. 
I was uh, I was an ad academic uh, person. I played some tennis, but it was not uh, physical fitness. But what I really liked about uh, West Point and the military is the shared values and the camaraderie that that you have there. And so I do know with 100% certainty that I am a better person and a better leader uh, for what I went through at West Point. I, I, it taught me to push myself to do things that I probably would not have been pushed to do. Uh, I, I became a more well-rounded person. Obviously, I got better in physical fitness. I learned, um, I did a lot more sports. Uh, I focused on the academics. I focused on academics that were not in the area of math. I, you know, it was a, it was a general uh, general education. So I did a lot of English and military history and law and things like that. So that was another great uh, aspect of West Point. And then some of the other things that, that really just West Point and Military Academy does is time management. I mean, they give you so much more to do in a day than you can actually get done. So you have to learn how to prioritize and to make sure that you get the important things done and you lay the foundation for the next day. Um, some of the other things is that I learned how to get yelled at uh, and take it. Uh, you know, that was that's that's not a that's not a bad uh, bad habit or a, a bad skill to have is that you're, you know, you're going to fail, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, part of that is that they give you more than you can do. And um, you have to learn how to, uh, to take that. And I think I have on my, maybe on my LinkedIn or my, my resume is that I learned as much about myself in math, in boxing class as I did in math mm -hmm. class. Uh, boxing is mandatory for, for all, all of the male cadets. Uh, it might even be a mandatory for the female cadets now. And, and that really taught you uh, a lot about uh, pushing yourself. So, you know, West Point is a leadership lab. It's four years of, of, of learning how to follow, which is the first year. The first year you have very few things that you can say or do. You just have to learn how to follow and take orders. And then you go through sophomore, junior and senior year with more and more responsibility. And it allows you to fail which is, I mean, I think we'll talk about it in a number of things is that my PhD research is in reinforcement learning and failure is a super important part of reinforcement learning. So, um, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, a lot of things that, that have to do with, with trying something, failing and learning something. Uh, so, so I think that is the, the, the biggest part. Uh, after West Point, Ranger School is, it's known for being really, really tough, but it is a, it is a, uh, it's a leadership lab as well. It's a leadership school. You know, they can put you under a lot of stress by denying you the food and the sleep. So you learn how to, uh, to react under stressful situations. So, you know, I guess that's the, the biggest thing that it taught me is that, you know, the saying is failure is not an option. Uh, it's not, that's not really true. Failure, failure is an option. As I said, it, it's required for success. But uh, West Point taught me that quitting is not an option. You know, the one thing you mentioned, I think, is really key, and I've never thought of it that way, is how much a part of all of what now people consider the ultimately powerful AI algorithms, they're fundamentally based on trial and error. That's how they learn. And literally to get to that image recognition algorithm that knocks it out of the park, it happens through millions or billions or trillions of iterations of failing uh, before you get to that success. So I've actually never thought of it that way. I think that's, a, that's an interesting insight that these, these tools that everyone thinks are, are changing the world today and probably are, are actually based on failure more than success, you might argue. 
Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, from a, from a, uh, I guess a qualitative standpoint, I can't prove this, you know, I'd say failure is a huge, uh, learning, uh, I guess, instructor. And, um, I think Mark Twain, I have a lot of sayings that I, that I read as I was working on my research. I think it was Mark Twain that said a cat that sat on a hot stove will never sit on another hot stove or a cold one either. And, <laughs> and it's because you, you learn things, you're generalizing. It's, it's, it's part of the, the entire, um, you know, reinforcement learning or credit assignment problem, which is you try something and it doesn't work. And that negative cost is uh, sometimes is a, is a minor negative cost, or in the case of the cat on the hot stove, it's a major negative cost. And you might generalize it to too many things, but, but eventually you're going to learn how to, uh, you know, you would try to get that cat to, to sit on something that's not, sit on a stove that's not hot and try to figure out that it's not the, the stove that's the problem, it's the hot that's the problem. But, but failure is, a, is an important part of the process. Um, for especially in reinforcement learning, which sometimes is a is a problem for the algorithm. You know, we were we were learning how to in our research for NASA, we were learning how to pull a tethered satellite back into the space shuttle. Obviously, you're not going to let that fail even once, but uh, you write simulations and you try to get it to where you can speed up that learning through a through either a simulation or some type of generalization that allows it to, to learn more and more like a human would. You know, one thing I know uh, you and I have talked a lot about how some of these things that seem really new aren't necessarily really new. And I remember you're describing to me a lightning talk you gave a few years ago tied to AI and some of the really surprising facts that uh, came out of that. Why don't you, why don't you summarize that? that talk here in a minute or two for the audience and, and your, your rather stunning uh, reveal right. at the end. <laughs> well, so um, at, at, at the place I used to work, we would do lightning talks every month. And, um, and so I wanted to let people know that while we're making a lot of breakthroughs in machine learning and artificial intelligence, that, that a, a lot of what we are doing is not necessarily new. And so a lightning talk is five minutes. And uh, so what I wanted to do is to highlight some of the things that have been done in the past. And I started it off with uh, a slide that said, in January, a paper was published that talked about uh, the steps towards artificial intelligence. And it broke it down into five different areas. And I've got five listed here. It was heuristic search optimization, pattern recognition, reinforcement learning, planning and problem solving, and then generalization. And so we talked for about 30 seconds about how that is exactly what we're doing right now. And then I, the next slide revealed that that's not a slide. I mean, that's not a paper. When I say January, that's not January 2021 or 2019 when I gave this talk. That is January 1961. And it's a it's a seminal paper by Marvin Minsky on steps towards artificial intelligence. And that is, that is uh, 60 years ago now. So 60 years ago, the, the luminaries in the field were talking about some of the same problems that we're working on now. That's not to say that we, we haven't made a lot of success, but it is a, it is a, uh, 
uh, it's instructive to know that there is a lot of history and a lot of research that that people would be served well to to learn about what's what's done in the past. And then then I went on into talk about how neural networks aren't necessarily new. The first models came out in the 40s. Um, I think the the first perceptrons came out in the 50s, and then back propagation was uh, first proposed uh, in the 70s, and I think applied in the 80s. And so it's you know that's that's 30 to 40 years old, I guess 40 years old now. And then went on into logistic regression, reinforcement learning, all of those things. Logistic regression back in the 1800s, reinforcement learning in the 1950s with both Bellman and Minsky. Uh, so it's it's really interesting to know that that what we have today is standing on the shoulders of the giants that have that thought about these things long before even computers were um, were something that that we had access to. Yeah, you know it's interesting me uh, in the traditional statistics world. I think part of why some of the methods like regression, logistic regression, went big first was because. They weren't quite as computationally intensive. And in small data sets, you could literally do them by hand. I, I think a lot of these other methods were an example where, you know, people had thought through the theory, but the, the processing power to actually implement that theory wasn't there. And I think that's obviously what really changed over the last several years that we've made all the progress is that we've been able to test those original theories and build on them. But more importantly, we've had the processing power that made it affordable to actually uh, do them in earnest as opposed to, you know, a pass or two to prove that the concept had merit. Right. Um, I agree hundred percent. You know, we've already talked about a couple of different types of analytics. I know, you know, when you joined Cardlytics, uh, uh, and spent your 11 years there over, over time, you ended up getting involved in a, a wide variety of, of analytics in a, in a bunch of different areas. And, and I'm sure that spans back through your UPS and Lucent days as well. What's the one area that has always been, you know, if you had a sweet spot, your, your favorite that, that you, you think fondly of what part of analytics is that? Yeah, I think I think I I've always liked um, the the optimization areas. I've liked dynamic programming, which is a lot of the focus of my of my thesis. So reinforcement learning is built on the foundation of of dynamic programming, which is sequential decision making. Um, I've also been uh, super interested in integer programming, linear programming, anything where where um, where we can take a, a model of the system and help prescribe what we should do uh, in the future, assuming that our model is the right one. It can either teach us something that we know um, or it can identify some of the limitations of the model. Uh, and I use that quite a bit. We use that almost every day when I was uh, managing the inventory and the scheduling for Lucent Technologies uh, fiber optic cable plant here in, in Norcross, Georgia. So it's it's something that I've always been interested in. Now, machine learning is 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 um is a uh, i love that field but i think that <clears throat> i think that there's a there there's a lot of focus on machine learning right now and i i don't think there's as much focus on optimization as uh as there probably should be let's take a, a little twist in a different direction here as you look back over the years of what you've done what's something that you wish someone had told you before you started working in the real world that uh you ended up having to learn the hard way instead right. Yeah, I think uh, Ed, that's a great question. A lot of this is, and we talked about you, you, you learn from experience. Uh, another saying that that um, 
I'm not sure it's been attributed to Mark Twain. It's been attributed to Roy Rogers and a lot of different people. But the saying is good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the whole idea that you're going to have to fail to learn. Um, but I think, I think what I, what I would like to have known and done better early on in my career, and maybe I knew this, but I just didn't do it, is that I needed to actively manage up. Um, early on in my career, I thought my, my actions and my results, they would speak for themselves and get you noticed and promoted. And in a lot of cases, they do, but uh, they don't in every case. And I think a, a corollary to that is that sometimes if you make things look easy, then they're going to think that it's easy. So, uh, you know, that's where you, you have to talk about how difficult this problem was. Uh, you, you know, think about when we watch a professional athlete, uh, either a baseball player, football player, soccer player, and they're going out there and they make things look easy. Um, we know because we've tried those sports that they are not as easy as it looks. Um, that may not be the case with uh, data science or analytics or operations research because, because there might be a, a misconception by the executives who, who think that this is something where you just have some data, you download an algorithm, and you get an answer. Um, so I think that's, those are the things that, uh, that I wish I would have done better early on in my career and, and explained uh, what we did and how difficult it was to do what we did. No, that it's interesting, the managing up. Um, I'm curious because I would imagine a lot of people would picture some, uh, a military structure that's, that's viewed as very top down and very rigid as somewhere where managing up is, is either discouraged or very difficult to do. I could actually see where it might be even more important in those environments because of how they operate to make sure people are aware. How did you find the managing up in the in a military context as opposed to a business context? Is it really the same, the the same in both, or are there some some very distinct differences? I think I think one distinct difference about the military is that that it is a, a very uh, very prescriptive route that you go, and so you would you would rarely be put into a role in in the military without. Um, and I'm talking about since I, since I was a junior officer, that you didn't know a lot about each of the roles that are under you. Um, so I think, I think in some ways that that is a, um, a benefit in the military is that you know that your commander, he or she understands your role, understands your job, and has probably done that in the last, you know, within the last five years, done that particular role. And... And so I think that was uh, that was a benefit. Now I think going further up, you might have officers who are uh, from a different branch, but they things are you know they've they've all gone to the same you know Army War College or Commanded General Staff College, those types of things to kind of bring it all together. So I think you know it, this is just my opinion. I it might be a little bit easier in the um, in the military because because the jobs are a little bit more defined. Whereas in a data science or analytics role, uh, especially as we were kind of building this, this field over the last 30 years, I think I looked it up. I think the, the term data science was only coined in 2008. Uh, we were doing a lot of things that would be considered data science uh, 30 years ago, um, but, but 
it wasn't really called that. It was called something else. And uh, it, it wasn't really known by the executives as much as, uh, as you probably would in a more defined job in the military. Well, I know over the years in your, you know, in your leadership roles, you've, you know, hired a lot of people who have attempted to manage up at you. So uh, what is what is one trait that you really uh, have singled out over time as one that you look for when someone's coming to you and applying for a job, particularly let's focus maybe on one of the more junior levels where some of our students might be targeting coming out of school? Sure. I, you know, I look for more of the I look for more of the soft skills. Um, and because I think that, I think that you're coming in with your technical skills, maybe you're not an expert in a number of these things, but you at least have, you at least check the box. And I think that's sort of table stakes, um, where, you know, if you're in early on, you either know SQL and Python or R or some other types of, uh, and you've done a few different projects either at school or, uh, or online. Um, once we have have identified that, that you've got a good foundation, then I think, and maybe it's not just one thing, but it's, it's more of a, you know, the, a intellectual curiosity, somebody that's wanting to come in and learn. Uh, I think that's important. Um, I think it's also important that they come in, not only that they want to learn, but they want to collaborate and they want to work as a team because it is, it is completely different. Uh, in a research environment, um, say at, uh, when I was working on my PhD, it was basically me and my advisor. Um, but in a team setting, we have hired that person to get one set of objectives completed. And they typically cannot get that set completed on their own. So we're looking at somebody that wants to collaborate and wants to learn and wants to make things better. You know, when you mentioned the teamwork thing, it's interesting. I think that's become much more important in the realm of analytics and data science as well. I know, you know, in the early days of my career, it was often one person, one project, right? You'd be assigned your thing and you'd go code it. And uh, th there wasn't as much of a team thing. Of course, you know, you'd ask your teammate, your teammates questions and such, but they were working on their own things. And I think as the complexity and scales evolved, of course, now you literally have teams of people attacking one problem. And that teamwork aspect has become you know, even more crucial. And, and today, I don't think, I don't think there, there's hardly uh, an ability to succeed if you're not uh, really putting a focus on that. And that's, that's another angle where the maturity of the field, I think, has driven, uh, you know, some substantive change. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's a, you know, in, in the military, they call it a force multiplier. It's if you can get people to work uh, and, and do things as a team, then one person's strengths it are going to complement another person's, you know, the, the strengths of everyone. You're, you're not finding a unicorn in a person. You're finding a team where somebody has the mathematical foundation. Another person might have the programming. Another person might have the business acumen. Another person might be able to either visualize it or tell the data story. And, and I think through that, that, you know, you, you all make each other better. And the person that's really good at telling the story is in effect teaching the others how to tell a better story. And the person that's a programmer is in effect teaching the others to be a better programmer. And everybody is lifted and the team performs much better than, than trying to find just one person. 
So, you know, as you've looked back at the various leadership roles you've had and, and being an executive, was there something about being in an executive role that surprised you in terms of what it entailed once you got into it that wasn't obvious to you when you when you first moved into an executive role? Yeah, I think I think one thing that was um, it took a little bit of time for me to get uh, used to as I moved from individual contributor into management roles and then as an executive, um, I had to transition and I had to learn to let go of the need to be the expert at the things that the team was doing. Um, because as an individual contributor, obviously you know the most about, about that particular project that you're working on because you're the one either creating the model or programming and things like that. Uh, as a manager, you might have a, a very detailed understanding of it, but as an executive, you're one, two or three layers away from that. And what you're doing is you're asking the questions and guiding the resources to the most efficient uh, answer, but uh, you may not know whether or not they're they're doing it in PyTorch or TensorFlow or how they're doing things. Um, so that was one of the things that, uh, especially someone coming from an, an academic background uh, and spending years and years on a very specific topic and, and writing papers, um, you, you kind of want to be the expert. But, but as an executive, you're going to have to recognize that you've, you've hired smart people and they have great ideas and you, you got to give them room to try things. Maybe some things will fail, some things will succeed, and they're likely going to surprise you with, um, with some of the approaches that they have. And, and uh, so if you had directed them to do it a specific way, that might not have been the best way overall because they've come up with something better. You, you know, it's it's funny. I was just having a conversation with someone the other day about the you know this topic of having to let go of feeling like you have to know everything everyone on your team does, and then you know generalizing that even that these days even people on the team don't fully understand what their teammates are doing because the you know the skill sets are so broad. And the little little visual that popped into my head is it's almost like a relay race in some of these projects. You know, uh, a four hundred meter. Uh, relay, everyone runs their 100 passes the baton. But I think the difference is in this case, it's almost as though you can't see the other person running and you don't know how they're completing their leg, but all of a sudden the baton appears and you just have to be ready to grab it. You know what the baton's going to look like. You know what you have to do with it. And then, you know, you put it through the, you know, through the, the opening at the other end for the next person to grab, but it can be almost completely opaque how people are getting their pieces done. But with the way that we've evolved these technologies now, you're defining the handoff points and that enables everybody to really maximize what they're awesome at and have it be a part of the chain without having to, to, to know all of it. But I, I think that's a, a you know, disconcerting at first, but it's really behind a lot of this progress we've made, I believe. I agree. I agree. So hey, I want to thank you for your time today. This was a, uh, you know, great insights and uh, as, as, as I expected, and I know the audience will appreciate it. So, Thanks for coming, and it was great to have you on the show. I loved it. I appreciate the uh, the invitation, and uh, I hope everyone uh, learns a little bit from this and, and be happy to do it again.